Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Kyle Clarich, and I'm here in Rochester, Minnesota from the Department of Cardiology with our Interview with the Experts series. I'm fortunate today to be able to interview one of my dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Jeff Gesty, Professor of Medicine. He has a very strong background in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and is a multimodality imager. And our topic today is to discuss the imaging and how that augments our ability to assess and treat patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So Jeff, welcome. Wonderful, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. And it's, it's kind of great to be interviewed by an expert in the condition as well. So I, I look forward to your insights as well. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think what we'll do here is we'll go right ahead with uh, trying to give our audience some better understanding of what are the benefits of echocardiography and cardiac MRI in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I know that you were trained in not only uh, MRI and not only echo, but also CT and nuclear, but you really want to talk about MRI and echo and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, as, as someone who has that multimodality background, I think hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is really the perfect example of how different imaging modalities can synergize in providing valuable information. So echo is the, the kind of the, the standard that we oftentimes use. It's the most frequently used uh, imaging tool in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it's useful in both screening for the condition as well as in following patients who have known hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. ECHO provides excellent insight into a lot of different aspects of this disease. It's, it's helpful for assessing biventricular systolic function, diastolic function, the valvular components of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or just concomitant valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, and quantification of dynamic ventricular obstruction uh, both characterizing where it is as well as quantifying how much is present. And cardiac MRI really has a very important role in the assessment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well. It provides unique myocardial tissue characterization, and in particular, the, the role of late gadolinium enhancement for assessment of scar burden has become increasingly recognized as an important aspect of sudden cardiac death risk stratification in this condition. And quantification of left ventricular hypertrophy can be very challenging. Even with good echo images, the morphology and distribution of hypertrophy in HCM can be quite variable. And because of that variable distribution and extent, having different ways to quantify and look at hypertrophy, both with echo and cardiac MRI is really valuable. And I think it's a great example of how these modalities are complementary in assessing this complex condition. Yeah, that's that's a really great explanation of why people need both. And you know, often I think some of our listeners may want to know what do we mean by scar burden? What does that and, and how is that something that we see by MRI, but we can't see it necessarily by echocardiography? Yeah, so uh, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, on a cellular basis, we know that there's myocardial disarray and that there's uh, patchy interstitial fibrosis that occurs 
amongst the amongst the myocardium. And so this is not like a uh, like an infarct mediated uh, scar pattern. It is diffuse and patchy. And I kind of think of it, this is simplistic, but I kind of think of it like the super glue that holds together all of this extra myocardium. And we know that this has prognostic importance in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because that, that scar can serve as a nidus or a focus or a substrate for arrhythmias. Very good. And, and it's a little bit hard to quantify, but I know the newest guidelines did ask us to look at sort of cutoffs for that scar, but I've been talking with some of our radiology colleagues. I'd just like to hear your opinion. It's not as easy to quantify maybe as the guidelines make it sound. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. Even though there are some, some tools and different methods that can be used to quantify it, uh, I kind of fall in a camp that says that sometimes a number may be very difficult to put to this. And I think the guidelines did a really great job of kind of catering to both approaches. It says that uh, significant scar burden is what matters. In, if you're in the quantification camp, then we use a cutoff of 15% of the myocardium. Uh, but the guidelines also acknowledge that this may be challenging and allow for visual assessment of a significant burden as well. Yeah, that's very helpful to, to know that that cut off 15%. But as you and I both know, with all these absolutes, things are kind of borderline in some cases. And, and then if it is hard to quantify, it's good to know uh, that they have allowed some wiggle room there. So you, you can kind of give a visual estimate of how much uh, burden there is. Another area with the MRI that I've used a lot in my practice, and I tend, I have to see a lot of patients with apical variant hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is really bringing out, drawing out that pouch and the aneurysm. And that certainly is something that's in the guidelines that has, has been uh, suggested to, to be, that we should be very aware of and looking for. And, and by echo, we can use contrast and that help is helpful in that arena, but, by, but MRI can also help us to sort out whether there's a problem at the apex that we might not be so easily seen on echocardiography. Yeah, I think both both modalities very helpful in that, as you said, contrast use increases the ability of echo to, to define an apical pouch or apical aneurysm. Uh, I think cardiac MRI still has the greatest sensitivity for looking for that. Uh, once again, the two modalities put together are, are important, especially as you said, as the 2020 guidelines have kind of moved up the clinical priority of that finding and include it early on in the decision-making tree for sudden cardiac death risk stratification and ICD implantation decision-making. Yeah, very, very important to keep that in mind. So um, I think one of the things that I tend to do in my practice is get an echo on patients either every year or every other year. Do you have a sense or, I don't think the guidelines really said how often we should be getting the cardiac MRI in order to look for this delayed gadolinium have you seen a, a pattern across the country or in, in our practice here even? <laughs> I think it's, it's uh, as with many aspects of HCM care, I think it is individualized. In particular, if you have a question that you're looking for, evolution of scar burden, uh, you know, say you have someone with uh, concern for progression of left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, someone with suboptimal image quality, I think that uh, those are going to be patients that skew towards sooner re-imaging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think if you have someone who's doing well and has stable mm -hmm. echo imaging, 
there's there's not a particular number, but I guess I kind of think about maybe three to five years as as a way to kind of check back in with the MRI imaging, knowing that they don't they don't necessarily assess every aspect the same way, and you may find that there is progression on one modality not seen on the other. Yeah, that's a that's basically how I've been doing it too. Individualized for persons, but usually think a little trigger goes off in my head. If they're doing well, maybe five years, every five years, get an MRI, especially looking for that delayed gadolinium and every three years if they're not doing great or sooner if you need to. Well, that was very helpful to think about those two modalities. What, what do you think the role of, um, maybe we've already touched on this a little bit uh, just now with the serial imaging, but is there anything else you want to say about serial imaging and serial uh, management of our patients? How I like to say to our patients, this is a longitudinal disease. We're going to be we're going to be watching you for the rest of your life. You're not going to get you know, unless unless some of some some of our patients do come to heart transplant, they're going to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy their whole lives, and so we have to think about it in that framework. So, um, one of the things that uh, we might want our, to just highlight is the serial imaging. And I know we just touched on a little bit in our last conversation, but just to summarize that maybe or add to it if we need to. Yeah, so most patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, annual clinical assessment is, is warranted. And ECHO, which tends to be the more frequently utilized of the imaging modalities, ECHO surveillance has uh, really have a very established role in the clinical management because HCM is a very dynamic condition. Um, and we know that extent of hypertrophy can change. We know that obstruction in particular is extraordinarily dynamic, can change even day to day, but that, uh, that it's a therapeutic target and it's something that affects uh, a lot of decision-making. Uh, ECHO helps in valvular assessment because even though these patients may have HCM-associated uh, mitral regurgitation from their dynamic obstruction, they can also develop a flail mitral valve just like any other patient. And so valvular assessment is important. And I think the guidelines have really emphasized the, the need to assess left ventricular ejection fraction and assessing biventricular systolic function. We actually just, uh, it's in press right now, are looking at the role of right ventricular systolic function and right ventricular size in prognostication for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So keeping an eye on the right ventricle, the left ventricle is a, an important thing that you gain with serial echocardiographic surveillance. And like we just said, I think there is an emerging and, and uh, uh, becoming more and more important role of serial MRI surveillance because the two are complementary, and you get unique information from echo that is not present on MR. You get unique information from MR that's not present on echo. So it's not really you know which is best. It's more so uh, about putting that data together and using it to make the right clinical judgment. Yeah, very good. And what what method do you think is the best, or would you use to assess dynamic outflow tract obstruction in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Yeah, I think um, because of how dynamic obstruction is, echo is really best served for that. Uh, MRI can demonstrate presence of obstruction. I think it can help with anatomic localization and understanding what parts of the ventricle or the mitral subvabular apparatus are involved with that. But for quantification and provocation, I think echo is uniquely suited in that regard. 
about uh, three quarters of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy end up having uh, obstruction as a part of their physiology. And that is both a therapeutic target and can influence outcomes. And even though that seems like a large amount, three quarters can have this, it's interesting to note that not all three quarters have this as a resting finding. So there are many times when we have this hunt for obstruction to find out, do you have obstruction as an underlying con contributor or driver of symptoms? And we know that loading conditions, preload, afterload, contractility really play a role. Dehydration, uh, antihypertensive medications like vasodilators, even level of stress can honestly matter. It's that dynamic of a parameter. And so when we're assessing patients with echocardiography, it's important not to stop just with a resting assessment. And we have a very organized approach to going through that in, in our echo lab. We will start with a resting obstruction, but then proceed with a Valsalva maneuver. And we can even go on to things like repetitive squat to stand or amyl nitrite inhalation at the time of the resting echocardiogram to assess obstruction. And then uh, Kyle, as you know, certainly there are many ways that where, where we have to go beyond that, where we have to do exercise assessment with an exercise stress echocardiogram or invasive hemodynamic catheterization where we may do an isoprel challenge or an exercise challenge. But at the time of a resting echo, I think that the combination of Valsalva, of repetitive squat to stand, as well as uh, at times amyl nitrite inhalation really gives a good initial assessment to help guide clinical decision-making. Yeah, no, that's a very thorough explanation. And, and I always find it interesting to, to do the squat to stand because it, with a lot of our patients, um, not only is imaging a challenge in that setting, but uh, when you're having someone do a squat to stand in the echo lab, but also sometimes people are limited with squat to stand in their orthopedic situation too. So that is, uh, but we have used it and it's very effective in bringing out dynamic outflow tract uh, obstructions in patients that can do a proper squat. But I would have to say the proper squat, kind of like a proper Valsalva. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has to be yeah. kind of tailored to the right patient. Yeah, if you have mm -hmm. orthopedic concerns, don't say, well, I saw in the webinar that we're supposed to do that and, and pursue. Uh, but I, I do think you're right, you know, squatting kind of all that blood in the legs kind of gets squished up into the thorax. You, you pinch your femoral arteries. So you increase your preload, you increase your afterload. And those two both serve to decrease obstruction. And then with relief of those by standing, you kind of have this perfect combination of dropping your preload dropping your afterload and facilitating loading conditions of, of obstruction. And I, I don't know about you, Kyle, but in office, in patients who can do that maneuver, I've personally found that it's, it's a more effective maneuver at bringing about obstruction than Valsalva. Correct, I, I would agree with you. I think it's true, it's easier um, to coach a person to do the right Valsalva, it, just like squat to stand. If they can't do a squat to stand because of the orthopedic or their age or the body habitus, whatever then a Valsalva that's done properly can be very effective, but you have to coach them. And, and I remember one particular fellow who is a famous cardiologist now, not Dr. Geske, uh, <laughs> who did, uh, did ask the patient of Valsalva, but had the patient take a large breath in and then bear down. 
And that, of course, when you take a large breath in, you are increasing preload and you bear down to increase to decrease preload. So you kind of have a, two maneuvers that are canceling each other out. Um, and one may win out over the other if enough time goes by. But nonetheless, I would go in and listen and, then, and I would do take a breath in, blow it all the way out and then bear down. So you need to have them, if they're going to hold their breath, make sure that they don't take a big breath, hold it, and then bear down. But the other way around, blow it all the way out, then bear down. Yeah, and it really takes coaching. If, I think if you just tell someone to bear down and you don't instruct them that they should not take a deep breath in before doing so, I think the natural instinct is to... <gasps> yep, exactly. And you really need to coach, you know, uh, we want you to exhale. We don't want a deep breath in, just stop breathing, bear down and hold. And that prolonged hold is also a part of this because you need time for that, for that change in loading condition really to affect the left ventricle and to have that uh, available to augment the obstruction. Absolutely. Well, I think with that, maybe I'll just uh, close with one last uh, comment or question for you to answer. And that what is what what recommendations changed in the 2020 ACCAJ guidelines pertaining to imaging uh, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And again, this is something we've already alluded to, but I think it's really worthwhile to really highlight it. Yeah, and it's a great question because, you know, whenever a new guideline comes out, they can seem so overwhelming with just sheer length. Um, from a diagnostic standpoint, for adults, not much has changed. From a pediatric diagnostic standpoint, there are some new cutoffs that are utilized. Um, previously, the wall thickness criteria for pediatric patients were based on a BSA adjusted Z score greater than or equal to two standard deviations above the mean but that's a significantly lower threshold than in adults as a 15 millimeter cutoff for adults would be a Z-score of like six. So the new guidelines suggest that in patients, pediatric patients without symptoms and without a family history, that a Z-score of 2.5 greater than 2.5 actually be used instead of two. And in those with a positive family history or a positive genetic test, then that same marker as before a Z-score of two remains appropriate. I think Beyond diagnosis though, perhaps the largest change in the guidelines from an imaging perspective actually relates to um, the sudden cardiac death risk stratification because that algorithm now incorporates three variables that were not present in the prior guidelines. Uh, and like you said, Kyle, we've, we've touched base on a couple of those already. Um, apical aneurysm, as well as late gadolinium enhancement we've talked about. And we did briefly touch base as well about left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Um, now, joining the big three previously, kind of the, the class 2A considerations for ICD implant were uh, a presence of massive left ventricular hypertrophy, so a wall thickness greater than 30, a family history of a first degree family member with sudden cardiac death and suspected or known hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as the cause, and then arrhythmogenic syncope. And now joining those big three, it's now turned into the big five. So along with those, those three from previous guidelines, presence of a left ventricular apical aneurysm or left ventricular systolic dysfunction, so an LVEF of less than 50%, are now individually uh, reasons to consider an ICD implant with a class 2A recommendation. Uh, now, you'll notice that it's the big five, not the big six, in that late gallium enhancement was not included 
in that earlier step of the decision-making algorithm, but is included in the decision-making tree with that cutoff of 15% or visibly significant or vis visibly extensive uh, late gain of enhancement. But it's a little bit lower down and I would think of it as a contributing uh, factor or something that I put in the global picture of sudden cardiac death risk, uh, risk decision-making but not necessarily one of the early ones where if that were the only thing present, would that lead me to a defibrillator? I will say I have had a patient recently who had um, extraordinarily profound late get on enhancement. We're not saying 15, we're more like 50, five, zero percent. And even though they didn't meet any class 2A markers, it, they had some things that were trending towards those and that very extensive late gettleman enhancement really pushed me over the threshold. So uh, I think that combining the ACC AHA guidelines, looking at the ESC calculator yeah. and then shared decision-making is really important. Individualizing those care decisions is very important. Yes. And imaging has a crucial role in that. And, and the latest guidelines have really shaped that a bit uh, by adding in those three new imaging findings into the decision-making pathway of apical aneurysm, LV systolic dysfunction, and late gum enhancement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's been a fantastic, uh, nice summary for our listeners, and I think uh, really uh, helped us to think back through again how we use complementary multimodality imaging to help manage our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So, Jeff, thank you for your time and your energy and your leadership in this field and all of the ways that you've contributed over the years. I hope you have a great rest of your day and thanks to the listening audience for your participation. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.